Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshay. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners? Thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 39 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Now, I hope you guys have your pads and paper ready to take some notes today because today's show is going to be full of knowledge bombs and important takeaways. Today, I'm joined by someone who I've been a huge fan of ever since I heard him on the Barbell Shrug podcast years ago. Not only is he one of the world's top experts in human performance research, but he also shares a very similar similar ideology as myself in the desire to break down and share what so many in the medical and science fields love to overcomplicate. He has a quote on his website that I love, which reads, the days of hoarding knowledge are over. Information that literally changes how you feel on a daily basis or adds years to your, to your life should not cost two months rent and should be available when and how you want it. As a tenured professor myself, I feel obligated to help because we must do better. I 100% agree with that. Now, I have no doubt that today the information discussed will add value to your life. If you haven't guessed by now, today's guest is Dr. Andy Galpin. Andy, thank you so much for being on today's show. For those out there who do not know your background and your work, can you share just a brief second your story uh, before we get into today's content? You got it, man. But first, I have to say, uh, I'm a little confused right now because I was under the impression today's podcast would be only about 1990s hip hop artists. Oh, well, we're going to get there for sure. Okay, good. Because that was the email I got, and that's what I agreed to <laughs> today. So I'm, I'm a bit thrown off. Um, okay, I guess here we go. <laughs> for those of you guys that don't know, uh, Andy and I both share a love for early 90s hip hop. Yeah. Um, I listen to it every single day, and I think it's probably the best way to start your day. Uh, actually, funny enough, that's exactly how I, I teach my five-month-old daughter as well. Um, <laughs> there was a little bit of West Side Connection going this morning to start her day off. Very nice. It Very ended nice. with a lot of giggles and babbling, so I think nice. it worked. I think so. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, uh, my current position right now is you know, I'm the director for the Center for Sport Performance at Cal State Fullerton. So I'm a, I'm a scientist by trade. I, I study muscle. Uh, I study performance, and so we take biopsies of athletes, um, and hey, actually, potentially some stuff we could get into uh, with biopsies, a lot of weightlifters, and, Definitely. and some other stuff like that, uh, but my job is to study human performance. Uh, I teach and do research in the areas of nutrition, uh, program design, performance. I work a little bit with athletes, including some weightlifters, but a lot of combat sport athletes as well, um, so I've got a PhD in what's called human bioenergetics is a fancy way of saying kind of muscle physiology and um, a master's degree in human movement sciences, which, you know, it's all the same shit, different name, uh, kinesiology, whatever, if you, if you will. Uh, I competed in Olympic weightlifting for a number of years. Um, that's, a, that's a true passion of mine. It's where I certainly find my home base, if you will. Um, I played college football, yeah, all that stuff. So that's, that's the, the quick end of, of what I am and what I do. Very cool. Very cool. So if you guys have not checked out Andy's stuff across, he's done a ton of podcasts before uh, on the Joe Rogan show uh, recently, which I know is a huge uh, one that a lot of people listen to. Um, but today we're going to talk about specifically, I want to start off by talking about the science behind strength. How is it developed? How do we continue to grow it and everything that goes in with that? Um, so let's start off with this. 
in the most simple terms, I guess, how would, uh, how is strength developed? How has it grown from the first day that we walked into the gym, never touched a barbell before to our later years under the barbell? How does it sort of path? How does that grow? How does it change? Well, that's a very, very interesting conversation. <laughs> I remember being an undergrad and basically asking the same question. And the answer is typically, well, neuromuscular adaptation. And by now, if you pay attention to this field at all, you've heard that just jam down your throat. And that's certainly true. But I remember <laughs> thinking at the time, yeah, I don't buy it. Like, it, 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 didn't res it didn't sit right with me. I thought like there has to be more to it. And so if we step back a quick second and we just look at how muscle uh, or movement is created rather, uh, it's really a three-part system. So number one, you have to have some sort of innervation or, or activation, some signal that comes from your central nervous system. So this is nerves, right? It comes from your brain or your spinal cord, depending on what type of movement it is. It's going to go out through uh, the smaller nerves, and it's going to tell muscle to contract. Mm -hmm. And so there's unquestionably true that a huge percentage of the adaptations, especially early in your strength training career, do come from the neuromuscular system. And, and even still actually later in your career. So even at the highest levels, you can still see some neurological adaptations and that will explain a decent portion of how you can get stronger without getting necessarily bigger. That's usually something think, that we see like within the first couple of years, like how someone that walks into the weight room for the first time, their PR technically jumps from, you know, 150 pounds bench press to 300 pounds bench press. They make this huge dramatic change within a year, whereas someone who's been, you know, lifting for 10 plus years, they're maybe only making two, you know, maybe even less one percentage change as far as their ability to gain strength on their PR because of the change in neural adaptation early on in that person's career. Yeah, I mean, I literally made a post about this yesterday. A, a, a new paper that came out in the last few months looked at uh, American female weightlifters over 10 years. So they collected data from uh, over 1,000 people from 1997 to 2015 and tracked these individuals over 10 years of their competitive career. And it was very interesting because they were able to show the rate of progression and increase throughout time. And like we would all predict, the first, especially six months, is the highest rate of, of increase from month to month, right? You just continue to get, especially in the snatch. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the snatch accelerates rapidly at the beginning. And it's probably because that's um, the more technical gains come from the snatch than the clean and jerk, right? Uh, oftentimes, gaining strength in the clean and jerk is, is a strength issue right? Relative yep. to, to the snatch. It's much more of a technique-based movement for most people. Makes sense. But as they age throughout their career, some point past like age five to, or uh, year five to seven of competition, what they saw is a huge jump or an increase in progression. And so what they also looked at is that was also the same time they had a huge jump in body mass. And so they're sort of theorizing, and this is not causation at all. This is just trying to put theory behind some numbers here is, is potentially at some point after, you know, five to seven years, potentially of really, really high level training uh, at some point, you're going to be very limited in your ability to continue to gain strength and adding body mass will, it's not required, but it will definitely help you get stronger. And this is makes like pretty obvious. Most yeah. people that compete in strength based sports eventually after some amount of time, we're going to go up in a weight class, mm -hmm. right? That's not standard, but it, if you want, um, they, they have a shit ton of data points in that study. So you can go back. It's up. I just posted it. And yeah, it's, I saw it's that kind of everywhere. Yeah. And, and look back to that stuff if you're really interested in this rate of progression. But I'll, I'll kind of go back to your original question. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt there's a huge neural, neural component to it. But let's not forget the other two-thirds of the equation. 
So in order for you to create movement, nerve has to talk to muscle and then muscle will contract. Okay. But it doesn't, the story doesn't end there because muscle doesn't move bone. Mm -hmm. right? Muscle connects to connective tissue. Yeah. Connective tissue comes together to form a tendon. Tendon is what connects muscle to bone. Mm -hmm. And so that connective tissue piece is the forgotten child of performance. Interesting. And so obviously I'm a muscle guy. I could talk to you all day about what happens <laughs> in muscle. Yeah. But I'll, I'll kind of jump uh, over that quickly and we can come back and spend a ton of time on muscle if you want. For sure. Yeah. But uh, the muscle itself, we have just uh, dozens, if not hundreds of different adaptations that happen in muscle independent of size, mm -hmm. right? That allow you to produce more force, contract with more velocity, that allow you to produce more power. Uh, that happen, that also explain, and these things do happen early in strength training. So uh, the adage that it's like, well, in the first eight months or so, it's all nervous system. And then after that, it's hypertrophy, like horseshit. That's a very simplistic version of it. it we, we see changes in muscle uh, within a couple of weeks of training that allow you to produce more force. Having said that, as I mentioned, I think the very interesting move, uh, part of the field moving forward is trying to get a grasp of what goes on with that connective tissue. Yeah. Because that's where the force transfer really happens. And you've got connective tissue. I'm sure you've got a hundred videos on this stuff, but <laughs> the connective tissue that wraps around the muscle itself is very, very interesting and complicated. And then the tendon, so tendon stiffness, all that stuff plays a part. And all of those things change in addition to things like penation angle which is an angle at which the muscle kind of lays into the bone and pulls. Definitely. So all of that changes. We know it changes very rapidly with strength training. And so to go back to your original question, you know, how is strength gained? Well, it, it's a combination of adaptation in all of those areas that allow you uh, uh, to produce more force over time. The trick then is how do you make sure you're not hedging your bets all the way to one side so that you don't plateau at some point in your career? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's the biggest thing I think is so many people run into this issue where, you know, they're making all this progress early on and they're yep. very gung-ho and they're like, oh, this is amazing. And then every single person hits that plateau, yep. you know, and the longer you're in the sport, the more, the more plateaus that you're going to hit. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I'm sure you've hit a plenty, you know, in your career and I've hit Never, my own. And, not. I mean, I can't remember the last time I had a snatch PR, but I still try to get after it every single day. Well, um, you're all also old. So, you know, I am old. Your you know, best I, days I, are done, my friend. I turned 32 this year. So it turns I, I, out I, it's pretty hard to work 90 hours a week and still hit PRs. It really is. I try to do the best that I can, but <laughs> I'm not training for three hours every day like I used to when I was in grad school. Exactly. 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 <laughs> um, I guess... You said a lot about, you know, there's that certain amount of neural adaptation and then there's hypertrophy. Do you feel like that's very individualized to the person based on their genetics, their upbringing, all the different factors that some people will have a greater amount of neural adaptation that can continue for longer? Whereas some people, you know, maybe they hit the, or at least they reach the quick potential of that neural adaptation earlier, and then they're going to need to work more on hypertrophy in order to gain uh, more strength later down the road? 100%. That's obviously the case. I think also probably, we'll call it neural, mm -hmm. right? Just because that's kind of a, that's the default to saying it's not hypertrophy. Yeah. Right. But let's also realize uh, it's hugely relying upon those other two components as well. Mm -hmm. Hey, now from the outside, you couldn't physically tell that because you can't see it. All you know is like, hey, you're not getting any stronger, <laughs> right? Or, or we yeah. got to add mass. I think we need to add mass to you because you're not getting any stronger this way. At the mm -hmm. current body mass or not that, that's but those are the components um 
that are that are really important to consider with that is it could be there. Uh, we have some pretty good data from our lab and others that show if you just look at the muscle cell itself, some people are born with say things like uh, more fast twitch fibers. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, obviously, weight training as in powerlifting, weightlifting style training, any of these things, it's generally going to hedge you to increasing the amount of those fast twitch fibers you have. So at some point, if you move those things very quickly, then you're going to get to that ceiling much quicker. If you don't, then you've got more time to progress. So that also is probably explaining a lot of how you can get to your plateau is you've differentiated your fibers. And so think of it this way, much like your strength training. So in your first year, you might add 20% strength. The next year, you're not adding 20%, mm -hmm. maybe 15. Eventually, there's an asymptote, right? Mm -hmm. If you're six years in your lifting career and you add 3% strength, you're probably stoked. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like you're tipping your coach. Like I'm, looking for, I'm looking for like a one kilo PR on some things right now. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. one kilo PR in five years is great. Yeah. Well, fiber type is the same. So at the baseline, if you've got this whole mix of different fast and slow twitch and these other fiber types, well, you start training in the first 12 weeks, they change hugely, you know, 10% changes or more. Mm -hmm. You start training for a year, you can certainly see a 20% change or, or higher in fiber type composition. After a couple of years, though, like you're very differentiated and you're very specified to the exact uh, um, with the, the said principle, right? So the adaptation is very specific to the demand you're being, it's being placed on it. So you don't have much wiggle room to go. So it could be nervous system, but it could be muscle too. Like it could be there. Uh, if you look inside the cell itself, as I mentioned, fiber type differences as well as interperson and intraperson differences exist in the signaling proteins that are responsible for hypertrophy. So this also kind of explains the beginning of your question, which is that, you know, you and I could be on the same exact program and we're both about the same size. Uh, what, what did you compete? 77? Uh, 77 the first year. And then my last probably like 10 years more, 85. Yeah. Okay. So I was 77 and uh, mostly 69. Yeah. Hey, call it, call We'll just call it both, both ourselves 77s. Yeah. Okay, great. We could go on the exact same training program. And, you know, you might, at the end of the year, you might have 10 more pounds of added muscle mass than I had, or the mm -hmm. opposite. And that's oftentimes explained by the fact that you just have so many more of the signaling proteins inside the muscle that tell you to hypertrophy, or at the gene level, right, that express the genes to grow more muscle. And so it's like, man, all of a sudden you're blowing up, and dude, you got to go to 85, man, because you're just, you're tapping out here, and we got to cut all this weight, and we don't want to do that. And I might be like, hey, I had the exact same program, man, and I gained one pound of lean muscle mass. And let's just say, you know, we were able to equate diet and sleep and everything was equal, yeah, right? Yeah. Take all that up with the equation. Well, if you look at the muscle fiber, you just, you're more sensitive to that stuff. Um, and, and you have more of those signaling mechanisms that, that tell you to do it. So that plays in the equation as well. It's just like, Hey, typically you're not going to see a tremendous amount of hypertrophy doing 10 sets of doubles. Yeah. But shit, you might, because you might be really sensitive to that. So stuff. it and really so, depends on the person. There's a lot of individuality yeah. when it comes to that. Yeah. So no that, that's probably a, a big reason why, you know, the idea behind taking a lot of those muscle biopsies with Olympic weightlifters is to see the, the differences and that even though you've got a class of 20 Olympic weightlifters that have all been lifting for, you know, 10 plus years, depending on what level we're at, if we're at, you know, senior international level, there still may be a lot of variation 
in oh it's huge i guess let's do this let's let's, um can can we simplify first the different fiber types just for those out there that have never taken a muscle physiology class before what are the different muscle fiber types and sort of what their um their purpose are i guess yeah so at the very surface level you can think of them as uh, fast switch and slow twitch Right, and they, their purpose is exactly in their name. It's one of the few things in science that's named appropriately. <laughs> so one of them twitches or contracts faster. Yeah. Twitches or contracts <laughs> slower. The advantage of slow twitch fibers, of course, is they're very fatigue resistant. Right. So think of your soleus. Think of your spinal erectors. Right. They're they're not meant to explode and contract. They're meant to keep you vertical and erect all day. Right. Makes uh, sense. Anti-gravity. Why we also train a lot of spinal stability. We're trying to train for endurance with like isometric training rather than, you know, 10 sets of one back extensions, because obviously we need our erectors to contract and provide stability for the uh, spine uh, at the first rep you do. And at the last rep you do during a training session. Exactly. Like bingo, right? But your hamstrings and your gastroc uh, are meant to propel like they're, they're meant explosions. So they're very fast, which means they get tired very, very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So if you were to do, uh, and try to train those muscles like the hamstrings over slow pauses, right? <laughs> heavy or long eccentrics, isometrics, they get super tired, super fast, right? It burns like all living hell. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's ever done uh, Nordic ham- hamstring curls, like three reps in, you feel like your hamstrings are going to tear. That is true. Right? It's like they're, they're just not used to doing that. They're primarily meant to do force production. So the reality of it is it's actually far more complicated than that. So we actually have a whole host of different fiber types. Um, there are what are called hybrids. So these are individual muscle cells that are uh, both fast and slow twitch. Interesting. There are even, uh, there's even a faster fast twitch than the fast twitch. Uh, and there's a combination. So it can be half or some percentage fast, some percentage super fast. So the same muscle fiber could have different components to it. Yeah, and actually the fiber type changes throughout the length of the muscle fiber itself. That's crazy. Yeah, so it gets very, very, very complicated. And the, the, the higher level version of this is typically the less trained you are, the more of those hybrids you have. And okay. we don't exactly know why, but I actually think it fits our spectrum pretty well here, which is to say that if you don't stimulate physiology, in this case muscle, Mm-hmm. it becomes undifferentiated. It kind of falls to the middle and says like, I don't know what you need me to do. So I'll just kind of wait for some stimulus. Interesting. Now you go do endurance training, steady state training. A lot of those are going to shift to slow twitch. You do, you know, anything in this, in the strength anaerobic explosive realm, it's going to shift to fast twitch. That's that and whole that's adaptation just, to the specific demand that you're placing on your body. That's exactly right. And this is why the, this is why um, I got so frustrated actually as a doctoral student, even as an undergrad student, uh, with the whole sports science muscle physiology realm, because prior to that time, man, there was just nothing on the weightlifting side, mm-hmm. nothing on the very little on the strength training side in general. Yeah. But I would hear comments from these folks and they'd say things about how muscle does this or muscle does that. And, and I would look at it and be like, you honestly think 10 sets of two is the same as 10 sets of 10. <laughs> and to them, like, that's all the same thing. It's like, it's all strength training. Yeah. And I would be like, no, you're going to get totally different adaptations totally different adaptations uh, mm-hmm. from doing these things. You can't tell me those things are the same physiologically. And that I was like, no, 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 strength, strength, strength training. Like, oh, okay, great. You, you don't have any clue of really yeah. what you're doing here. And now we're just fortunate to have research behind that shows, no, no, no. Like, if you do plyometric training versus heavy eccentric training, that little difference, you know, little difference in quotes 
is enough to cause differences in fiber type transformation. Mm -hmm. So it, it's very specific to the exact type of demand uh, that, that gets put, that put the muscles put on. So your yep. programming matters a lot. For sure. So now you did, or were able to take a number of muscle biopsies with Olympic weightlifters. And what was that? The uh, American Open Series uh, last year, one of them? Um, not, well, we did it at Worlds. Clinic? Oh, okay. Yeah. At Worlds, uh, obviously not in Turkmenistan. <laughs> <laughs> Worlds two years ago in Anaheim. Yeah. It happens to be right on the street. So uh, the, it took us a long time to, to work on that tissue. And it's actually in review right now. Oh, that's awesome. So it's been in review for like six weeks. So I'm getting irritated. Yeah. How many biopsies were you able to get during that time? We did uh, 20, 25 or something like that. Wow. Now I know it's in review right now. Are you able to uh, give us a little preview of the results? I can give you a small preview. Okay. I uh, mean, honestly, like a really, I, I scheduled a bunch of media this month and some other stuff because I thought it'd be out by now, but I'm yep. like, oh, I'm going to reschedule things. So, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not allowed to really say too much, but yep. here's what I'll say. One of the major things I wanted to emphasize is I wanted to get tissue from the females. Yeah. Because traditionally, what people say is females have more slow twitch uh, than men do. And if you look across the literature of untrained people, old, old people, sedentary people, that seems to hold fairly true. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was really questioning whether that's true in weightlifting. I don't know what your experience is, but, and I've asked a lot of coaches. I lost, I've asked, I'll ask a lot of athletes this. Um, I feel like it is still fairly true that female weightlifters tend to get more volume than the, their male counterparts. And they tend to respond better to that volume and tend to respond. The men tend to respond poorly to the same volume as the women. They can't help as much. Yeah, I, I know that's... in my experience, there's been a lot of, at least the way my coach, so Anna Martin out at Casey Weightlifting, she's the one that uh, helps me with a lot of my technique and coaching still. Um, she always says that in her experience that a lot of women can handle more volume, combat, you know, meet prep, especially that two weeks, one week before the actual meet, they're able to handle and still bounce back from a lot more volume. Whereas mm -hmm. I know personally, I've had to cut back a lot of my volume during that last you know, week prep or else I'm fried come the actual meet time. And I know she also loves prepping uh, with a lot of her younger female weightlifters, you know, 10 sets of 10 on squat. <laughs> yeah, I hear yeah. That, I'm like, I would die. Like I right. think the worst squat day I ever had was eight by eight. And I, I don't even know if half the sets I was able to make it through the full, the full set without having to re-rack because I was just so dead. Yeah. So this is actually very interesting because I can get into a, uh, a, one of our studies we have published on taper, okay, um, which is very interesting looking at the muscles, specifically the fast twitch muscles and what happens to them during taper. Mm -hmm. But this is why I wanted to get into it because there's that adage out there and I just want to know, like, is, is that true? And if it is true, fine. Uh, what's the muscle physiology behind it? Is it not muscle? Is it nerve? Like, is it something else or is it very different? And so what I can say is without doubt, I was very surprised with what we found. Um, okay. And I'll put it this way the world caliber girls. So our girls that were in Rio and uh, on the world team last couple of years, they're very fast. They're very, <laughs> very, very fast. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I can even make a, it's even more exciting than that. So okay. I, I just can't say much. At I'm, this point. I'm very um, excited to read it when it comes up then. It, it should shake, shake a lot of people that, that work in the area of muscle physiology. Um, yeah. They're going to, they're going to read that and be like, what? Yeah. 
so that's it's going to be very cool. I'm very I was very impressed by our our ladies. Um, the men, eh, eh, yeah. eh, they're all right. Yeah, um, they were pretty good, but not this. Not the, the women really shocked me and represent some things we've never seen in literature before. Very interesting. So it's really cool. But uh, having said that, one of the things that we thought about with this study is is you know we're trying to get at, and this is something I've talked to Travis Mash about a ton, mm-hmm. is, is how do we taper these folks? And if you are someone like me, because I'm guessing you're probably very fast twitch as well. Yeah. The reason being, uh, I, I theorize at this point, based on a bunch of different things, it's not completely shown yet because we've never fully studied it. But I think people that are more inclined to fast twitch fibers stuff, that are more fast twitch, need more taper prior to competition. Those that are more slow twitch need the opposite. Interesting. And so I think this is one of the things where we could potentially start examining these things. And if you understand your fiber type, you could, you could quick, uh, more quickly get into being known like, Hey, I'm, I'm someone who's just going to need to back off more or uh, all there. And because we did a study a handful of years ago with a cross country team. So there's a coll- uh, collegiate cross country team. I know it's pretty far from weightlifting, but you know, this is, these, these, studies, are, <laughs> these studies are tough to pull off. Um, yeah. Weightlifters don't have a season. Their training is too different. They're not in the same place. Like it's the standardizations are very, very, very difficult to pull off. So it's much easier with a college team. I know the schedules, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we biopsied them before and after their three week taper. So at the end of their three week taper was their actual conference championship meet. Okay. So there's scan of the game. Like there's real, real stuff going on here. It wasn't like a theoretical outside thing. So, what we looked at is um, they end up tapering by about 50% of their total volume throughout the three weeks. Okay. Okay. And so taper lasted about 21 days. They got to about half their training volume, which is uh, uh, generally what the literature would suggest to be a, the best approach for taper is to get to about 50% volume for a duration of, you know, five to 20 days mm-hmm. somewhere in this wheelhouse. And um, endurance athletes are typically not very good executing their taper but this team was and they were terrified to do it what we found was their vo2 max and all their endurance and all of the enzymes in their slow twitch fibers that make them very good at you know being fatigue resistant did not change at all in the three weeks despite doing half of the volume interesting and so to me like i just had a conversation with one of my uh kickboxer muay thai fighters last night i'm like she's so terrified to stop training so hard all the time because she thinks she's going to get unfit and i'm like like, look, every ounce of science we have suggests this is like fitness is very stable. Your conditioning is extremely stable. Your speed is very transient. Technique is very transient. So during that taper, go fast and keep your technique sharp, but you don't need to pack on the volume if you've had a good camp, you know, leading up to your meet. If you've had a solid couple of months to prepare, you're not going to lose your fitness in a couple of days. That makes sense. Certainly a week. But what was very interesting was we saw uh, around a 10 to 15% increase in fiber size, force, and power with three weeks of reduced training hmm. in the fast switch fibers only. So I'll let that sink in a little bit. Yeah. We increased, and what I mean by power is, so imagine taking the muscle biopsy. We take the muscle cell out of the body. We put the individual muscle cells, so this is not nervous system. This is the equation. We put that muscle cell into a, into a little basically strength force plate, mm-hmm. tie one end of it, contract it as hard as it possibly can and measure how much force that individual muscle fiber can produce. 
So the size, the speed, and the power of the fast switch fibers, you know, 10 to 15% improvement by just training lasts for three weeks. What's your theory behind why that would occur only in the fast switch versus slow twitch? Yeah, I, it's actually like, I don't think anyone's ever asked that question, <laughs> but phenomenal. <laughs> I think it's specifically because all that training was compromising the fibers, so the fast twitch fibers so much, the slow twitch were able to handle that volume, but the fast twitch were not. And so once we backed off a little bit, I don't think they necessarily got stronger or bigger. I think they simply returned to their baseline. That makes sense. They, they were basically getting burned out so quickly during all the long strenuous stuff that they were almost depleting in their potential of what they could do. And then as soon as you take away that long adaptation stimulus, it's not that they're getting necessarily much stronger or more fast twitch stimulus. They're just not, you're just removing the slow twitch, crazy long stimulus. So they're yep. just going back to what they were at baseline. And what's interesting is when we, cause we, we, we tracked all of the training for the, the athletes the entire time. So we knew exactly what they did for that three weeks. Basically what they did was they kept all of their race paced running in, right? So they do certain runs at their exact rate pace, right? To, to make sure they feel that. And that's, that's their version of technique, right? And they kept all their super high intensity intervals and all the, the long, slow jogging took out. Like all that, all that extra volume yeah. for the sake of volume got taken away. They kept their technique stuff and stayed really fast. And turns out that was very, very helpful for the fast switch fibers. Now, does that improvement or I guess regulation of going back to that uh, the pre uh, level of what the fast twitch fibers are capable of. Would that have any carryover in how to, or how they performed during race day? So they all improve performance by three to 6%. So we can, can we maybe attribute that not necessarily to, I guess you, you sort of, you know, there's a lot of it depends, but to yeah. obviously how they trained the slow twitch, but also the ability to allow the fast twitch to recover so that then they can exert as much performance before they burn out. And then you obviously have the rest. Thank you. The yeah. Rest of the I way. mean, unfortunately we don't, we have, there's too many variables to know, yeah. <laughs> but that's certainly my argument is, yeah. Hey, like you got faster because your faster fibers were allowed to do their thing. Makes sense. You stop, stop beating them down as much. Uh, yeah. And so there's, it doesn't directly transfer over to powerlifting and things like that because of that issue. But I think it's good. It's good fuel for us to go, Hey, like, I, th I think we really need to start studying taper for these uh, anaerobic sports. And I think there's something really going on muscle wise. And I think it honestly has implications for non-competitive athletes too. It would so, also understanding your muscle fiber type and which way your body's leaning either way, allow you not only to better um, create a taper individualized to your body, but also performance wise, lean you along the right path as far as which program is right for you at which time to get yourself the most performance uh, outcomes as possible. Yeah. And I, th I think it just, we have to realize that, that, you know, um, a, a couple of things, just training harder and training more is like, it's, it's not the answer. Like you could be not peaking, you could be tapered, you could be plateaued, not because of your neurological systems. We, we, it's just cause, simply because you're training too much. I've you're definitely not on a well-designed program. Yeah. Right. Like you back off and all of a sudden you get way stronger. Yeah. I know when I first started working uh, full time, it was, you know, the 40, 50 hour work week, get in at seven, train at lunchtime, get off at seven, go train till nine o'clock at night, 
do that four nights a week, train on the weekends. And I was wondering why I wasn't getting any stronger, yeah. why I was actually decreasing my performance. Was, obviously, that's a huge hit to your body when you bring in all the other stressors of life. And then just more training isn't necessarily better training for the no. I mean, adaption processes. You can play that game for a short bit. If you're 22 years old, mm-hmm. if um, you know, you're in your first, say, two or three years of training or something like that, and you're in that novice intermediate level, but eventually that's going to stop working. Yeah. And so it's like you can keep that up. Or you can listen to science. It's yeah. just like, hey, back off here a little bit. Um, but having said that, some people won't. So I, I think it also should be right people saying like, hey, we can't just, you know, take somebody's program that, uh, that, you're, that Aaron wrote for your friend and do their program. <laughs> no, true. like that's not going to work. That could be very, very bad for you. Yeah. Even a sibling or something like that. And so you really need to personalize volume we can't just take programs from the internet we can't just look up something um that some russian scientist put out 75 years ago and just put that in play like it might be a great program but you know like it may not be for you it may be very 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 bad for you so yeah depending on where you're at in your career uh, but it's it's all a ton of interesting stuff that of course i love to look into but you know Lots of, lots of conclusions, hopefully. Very true. If we're talking about that lifter that has been in the game for a while, you know, let's talk eight plus years mm-hmm. and they're making their way, you know, and they're looking for those, those small percentages in gains. Is there a way to continue gaining strength without having to necessarily bulk up more? Is there mm-hmm. a way to still see progress without adding more muscle mass? Yeah. Or is, that, is that the main way, I guess? Well, I think you can actually, I can speak to that because yeah hopefully you'll see that manifest itself tomorrow. I don't know when this single, this podcast will come out, so that'll sound outdated, but tomorrow yeah. is the American open finals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, Morgan King is a perfect example of that. So right now uh, I expect her to, to shock a lot of people tomorrow. Uh, she, she's been in the game for a while now. She's mm-hmm. an Olympian and, and she is tremendously strong right now. Yeah. Uh, so like she, I, and she's still in the same weight class, right? Mm-hmm. She, she's down to, you know, 49 kilos. So she's back down there. I, I think what we've put together for her is, is a good example of, yeah, you can do that. It's, it's not easy. There's a lot of different things, but for her, we had to, to go back really and rebuild some things. Okay. And, and I think that that is a way to do it. And so it's a combination. It's much more difficult to continue to get stronger after a while. And some people, you might mention to say like, no, I, th- I think we're just too small here. We need to go up, but it could be a small, small, small change in technique, which is, you know, like for her, that was a big deal. It was a small technique and movement. Um, mm-hmm. It's the position of how to squat, things like that. And then uh, some changes, some fundamental changes in training, which could be things like more volume, could be things like absolutely less volume. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to figure it out because what, what you're trying to figure out is, is why are you lacking the strength? Right. And if you're lacking the strength, say, because of connective tissue, then you need to train a totally different way than somebody who's lacking strength because of a slight technique issue or they're not consistent or it's a neural issue or it's like whatever it is. So the, the answer to that question is it depends on why you're lacking that little bit of strength anyways. And, and so the result would then be very different programming. Makes sense. Um, I guess is adding more muscle uh, a guaranteed way to add to gain more strength. Oh, yeah. OK, so that's good. Uh, I got a bunch of videos on this on my website so you can watch, but if you want more info here, um, if you look at the physiology of what hypertrophy is, 
-hmm. Okay, so it is absolutely, in fact, I just released a video, I think this week or last week on how to get stronger without getting bigger. Right. And it covers a couple of these things we mentioned, but some of them more detail. And I have an hour long video on that topic that will be out very soon. So you can awesome. get super nerd into that. <laughs> I love it. Just crazy nerd. The inverse is, is there. Okay. So then can you get, add more muscle mass without getting stronger? And if yes. you're talking about adding hypertrophy, well, here's how your muscles are designed. So the contractile portion of your muscle is made of, of two primary units. One of them called myosin. They're called actin. Okay, well, you have a certain amount of myosin and a certain amount of actin because uh, the myosin reaches up, grabs the actin, pulls the actin closer together. That causes the muscle to contract. You can't just add or take away myosin because then the ratio gets all screwed up, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just, it'd be like going to a house and taking in and adding out a wall. Like okay. it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The way that you add to the house is not by doing that, but by adding to the outside, right? And, and adding more rooms. In this since you don't necessarily um, add uh, more myosin or actin units, but the size of each individual, one of those gets a little bit bigger. Okay. And so this is what, this is really the definition of muscle hypertrophy. That being said, since those are the units that produce contraction, if you add more of them, they get bigger and thicker. There has to have some resulting increase in force production. And so it's not possible to get muscle mass without getting stronger. Assuming technique stays the same, biomechanics yeah. stays the same, like all that other stuff. Now that doesn't mean adding muscle mass is the most efficient way to add strength. Those are two separate things entirely. And so the, yeah. class, the easy example here is bodybuilding and powerlifting. Mm -hmm. You're an idiot if you think a bodybuilder is weak. <laughs> like Google yeah. Ronnie Coleman leg press. Yeah, crazy. And come back and tell me he's weak. <laughs> Is he as strong as the strongest power lifter? No. And so there's that subtle difference here. It's not the optimal way to gain the most strength possible, but if you add muscle mass, you're going to add some strength. It, it's almost a guarantee. The only thing that gets a little bit tripped up is, is, is understanding there are slightly different ways to think you had hypertrophy. And so, for example, if you're more or less hydrated mm -hmm. uh, or, or stuff like that, if there's some damage and acute swelling going on in the muscle. Okay, so that's not going to be what, people call functional strength. So it's not functional hypertrophy. Right? But if we're actually talking about real physiological hypertrophy, the cell diameter, the cell got larger. Um, the other issue there is the space between, it's called lattice space, but it's the space between the actin and the myosin. If that gets too large, you lose uh, the ability of the myosin to grab the actin and produce contraction. So that can be a detriment as well. But typically under almost all normal circumstances, if you add hypertrophy, you're gonna add at least some strength. Some people have tried to refute that lady lately, but the data is, is pretty clear and the physiology and the mechanics and the physics are all pretty clear. Okay. Um, I guess next question, how does rest intervals uh, during training, how is that in manipulating rest intervals? And obviously there's a number of different ways that you can do this uh, depending on the intensity and the volume at which you're, you're lifting at. How do rest intervals and changing that up change whether or not we're seeing more gains in strength versus hypertrophy or going either way. So that's really good too. This is an area that you think we'd have very well vetted by now, but we really don't. Yeah. So I think the Brad Schoenfeld's recent work has really challenged this. So mm -hmm. two years ago, I probably would have given you a different answer to that question. Interesting. Typically uh, it's a spectrum. The more rest you take, 
the more you're going to be hedged towards strength gains and less towards hypertrophy. But Brad's recent work has even shown you can have equal hypertrophy with very long rest intervals as well. So having said that, if uh, I'll put it this way then. If you're interested in hypertrophy, you really can do whatever you like with rest intervals. Um, if you add more rest, then you either need to add more volume, more reps, or more weight. Okay, you can't just keep the weight the same and rest more. Right, that, that, that's going to be a problem. You can rest less, though, if you want, but that's probably going to mean you're going to have to take weight off the bar or you're going to have to do less reps. Like, mm -hmm. So there's a game you can play there, and you can really slide that scale in any one of those three dimensions you want. So if you decide you want to do 30-second rest intervals, and, hey, by the time you finish that fifth round, you're going to be barely moving the bar, that'll be just fine. If you want to do the opposite and take three, four, five minutes between, sets, fine, but you better make sure that you're going to failure at the end of each one of those sets. Makes sense. It has to be to failure or, or, or close failure-ish, right? Don't, don't blow yourself to a complete piece. <laughs> yeah. Right. But getting somewhere like that. So with hypertrophy, honestly, I'm sort of like, eh, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. like, just, just train hard. You'll yeah. be fine. It's not as, as written in gold as you may see in some of the, uh, the muscle magazines used to. Used to no. Start. I mean, but, you know, like, that's, that's what we thought at the time. I mean, if, if, you, if you came to my class four years ago, that's what you mm -hmm. would have saw. Yeah, it would have been there. But I mean, I've had to say, you know, I was wrong on that one. All of us were wrong. I think Brad's, yeah, you know, research has been pretty clear in showing that that's not true. So we've had to change. In terms of strength, though, it appears pretty clear, man, the more rest you take, <clears throat> the better. The one thing I can say on that, though, is I'll, I'll counter it a little bit in two respects. Number one, the more fit you are, the less you need to rest. Right. So some people who are, uh, you know, and by fit, I don't mean like, you know, your one mile run time. I mean, like fit for strength training fit. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do it a lot. Uh, some people seem to be just fine after a couple of minutes recovery. Uh, also, people that are competing in like weightlifting, sometimes uh, you need to strategize such that you're able to repeat max effort in two minutes or less. Because that's, that's a part of the sport, right? If you have to follow yourself in sport, you don't want to be gassed. Yeah. Because that could ruin your whole, you could bomb out, could ruin the whole competition. Right? Why we used to do a lot of, I remember during meat prep time, you do like six sets of one with a minute rest mm -hmm. during your prep time just to get you lifting between that 80, 85, 90% with very little rest in between. Yeah, I did one prep for national championships where uh, for I think the five or six weeks prior to it, every single lift I did in less than two minutes. Yeah. The I mean, it makes time. sense. You, you need to change the way your body's adapting to lifting those heavyweights because if you're always taking... Yeah three to four minutes rest in between. And then you get into competition day and, oh, hey, you got to follow yourself, especially in weightlifting. I know powerlifting, depending on where you're at, sometimes yeah, they, yeah. they can do round robins and whatnot. But, I mean, you got to be able to recover and go quick yep. in two minutes. Yep. So that's aspect. Um, if you go even further on the spectrum, there's been a lot of evidence on cluster sets. So a cluster set is where you take 10 to 20 seconds of rest between each repetition. Mm -hmm. So say you're going to do six sets of doubles. Uh, typically in the real world, you know, if you do, you're supposed to do set of two, you do two reps, you know, in a row <laughs> in weightlifting <laughs> two yeah. in a row is like 30 second break in between each one. Cause you got to like restack the weights and, you know, <sighs> rebreathe and regrip mm -hmm. and put your straps back on. And it's like the whole set took a minute and you're like, great PR double. Like, yeah. What? I think, I think most of my doubles and triples are, are basically cluster sets. Thing. I, I take a little rest time in between each one for sure. Yeah. I mean, so it's funny because I always laugh, but that, like, that's a very standard. That's the norm in weightlifting. Yeah. 
but now that there's so much research on it, it suggests that's actually more effective for strength and power development. Interesting. So, and all you're really doing is giving yourself a little mini rest in between each rep. And so really, instead of doing six sets of two, which would be 12 reps, you've really done like 12 sets of one. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's really what you did, but you did kind of like mini breaks in between them, then a bigger <laughs> break. So six sets of two would be something like, okay, one squat, you know, or maybe like a, I'll use a high pull or something. Mm. So it's like, okay, one high pull, whoo, shake it out, re get, rip back in, you know, 10, 20 seconds, do another high pull, boom. And then you rest your two to five minutes. Mm. Then you do your, you know, pick it up for start set two, et cetera, et cetera. So you're still taking your rest per set that are normal, but the difference is you're just taking that extra 10 or 15 seconds. Clusters don't work great for bench because then you got to re rack. Yeah. Um, you know, squats to kind of depending on what you're doing. You got to re-rack, same kind of an issue. But deadlifting is very, very easy. Mm -hmm. Any weightlifting movement is super easy for that. Uh, so those things work very well. And all they are pushing that into the rest interval spectrum, the opposite, right? Which is like maximize rest. Really get yourself as much time in between so that the quality goes up. Um, and those tend to, again, elicit greater power and strength adaptations, not just in a day, but the adaptation six to eight weeks later will, will generally be better with the clusters. Makes sense. Now, I know you touched on recovering quicker in between um, different sets, obviously. And that brings into the whole, you know, other picture of conditioning for like a weightlifter or a powerlifter. Mm -hmm. Obviously, CrossFit has its own different type of conditioning because it's completely different as far as bringing in the cardio aspect to the training cycles that we see. But with weightlifting and powerlifting, it's very similar. Most of the time, we're touching a barbell, you know, during a large portion of our training what i guess aspects or ways to train that how does that i guess bring into becoming more fit so for a weightlifter doing some sled pushes or mm -hmm. you know doing some farmer walks where we're really getting our heart rate going for a long extended period of time is that the best way to become more fit are there different ways that you think are the most efficient for a weightlifter and powerlifter where obviously our main goals are becoming stronger so we compete and perform at our highest level obviously I guess, what are the best ways to do that? And is, can you do it too much to the point that you're doing too much and uh, decreasing your performance in the end? Yeah, I would say the answer changes depending on what part of your training cycle. Okay. So if you're in a real off season, so say you are a national caliber lifter and you finish American Open finals this week and your next big meet isn't until March, you know, something like that. Uh, then I think you have a lot of bandwidth to spend time in January pushing sleds, yeah. getting heart rate up a lot, right? And really getting fit, doing 10 sets of 10, whatever. Like Travis Mash's girls, poor Hunter and, and stuff. She, they came back from Worlds and it was 10 sets of 10. Yeah. You know, they had just come back from doing like a month of sets of one. <laughs> you know, they just get hammered. Yeah. And they're doing all kinds of stuff like that. I wouldn't do that, though, if you're three weeks away from a major competition. Makes sense. Right, so specificity, the, the general rule of program design is going to tell us that the further away from competition, the more, again, bandwidth you have to do general preparation, the closer you get, be more specific. And so when you talk about getting fit, that's really comes down to two things. Um, people conflate this word often uh, in shape and condition. Well, there's two types. Um, so let's think of type one as being, okay, yeah, can you push the sled? Um, your heart rate gets super high. You're going to throw up, you know, like. This type of stuff is this fundamental general physical preparation, if you want to call it that. Uh, drags, carries, pushes, pull. This stuff is very good to do far away from competition. 
But what most people don't understand, unless you're a weightlifter or a powerlifter, is being fit also just simply means can you handle that high intensity in the same movement pattern often? Mm -hmm. So I recognize fitness as something like, hey, if you're a you know weightlifter like Morgan, she has the fitness to squat for eight to ten sessions a week because mm -hmm. she can recover and squat again and recover and squat again. So you may take her on the sled. And I could take any one of my UFC fighters and they could probably bury her on the sled push thing, but not a single one of these UFC fighters could handle the squatting that she handles, even at the same relative load at the same percentage by day three, they'd be crushed because they're not fit enough to recover from that exact same movement pattern, in that same session. So that's also the type of fitness you need to think about, especially if you're thinking about like long-term athletic development of a weightlifting athlete is yeah. Okay. Are we talking about like getting them in shape or are we talking about, getting their ligaments and positions used to this movement pattern over and over and over again so that we can have that kind of quote-unquote fitness to really go through a, a hard six-week cycle where we're squatting five, seven, eight times a week, mm -hmm. maybe more at a high intensity. That is, that is fitness. That is conditioning as well. So you got to be in shape to handle that repetitive movement pattern. And that takes movement quality and it just takes time. It takes a lot and a slow progression to that type of volume. So um, those, I think th that part of it's misunderstood by a lot of people that takes fitness as well, but it doesn't necessarily take a high VO two max. So fit fitness is always going to be very specific to the, the task that you're trying to prepare yourself for. Yeah. It's fitness conditioning, whatever you want to call it, right. Call it in shape, you know, same, same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So would you say that, um, I mean, the more conditioning that you have, as far as an accessory to your programming, uh, sled pushes, different things like that that I talked about, you're going to want to often decrease the volume, how much you're doing as you're getting closer to competition so mm -hmm. that you can be more specific to what exactly the training program is trying to produce. As well as over your career. The beginning of your career should be hedged way more towards conditioning in both these styles of conditioning uh, mm -hmm. rather than intensity. And as you get later in your career, and if you look at it this way, if you look at Canada and New Zealand and a, a, a huge amount of other countries, they all have what are called long-term athlete progression models. And, if, and they are all based heavily on, you don't try to peak strength until something like five to seven years in your career. Because we're building this, this fitness and this conditioning early on. So number one, we don't hit those plateaus. Number two, you don't break. And number three, when you retire, you're not a complete trainer. Um, myself, I know I made this mistake of just jumping straight to intensity, mm -hmm. right? And I was trying to PR and peak as much as I possibly can in your first couple of years. And then you get stalled out and all these issues happen. But the long-term developmental model suggests that spend more time in your career, especially if you're working with somebody who is younger, like a high school age kid, like that should be just huge, huge amount of that time should be this type of conditioning, this type of fitness, getting their body trained and now when they're 23 24 25 you can start worrying about winning competitions makes sense i guess for the next question for an athlete who has run into that plateau they've been training for a number of years they run into a plateau they still feel like there's more potentially out there for them strength wise mm -hmm. obviously there's a lot of individualized factors as far as looking at the techniques and different things like that. What are, do you think are the most important factors in looking into determine whether or not, or the best ways to break through a plateau? That's a great question, man. I don't think I can give you an answer. Yeah. I honestly don't. I would say, you know, unfortunately, but you're going to have to just try something. Yeah. 
I don't think we have any metric to say, of course, get opinions from different coaches and different people that are around you say, I think you need this. And I think you need this, but you're never going to know until you try sort of the trial and error. Yeah. You're just going to have to. And probably the answer is, well, whatever you're doing right now, don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah. That, but it may be two diametrically opposed answers. One athlete might need less volume, just higher intensity stuff. And mm -hmm. one might need a complete reset. One might need to go back. Um, like this is what this is one of the things we dealt with with Morgan is is went through her stuff and we're like look it's been prior to Rio you spent a lot of time on the Zygmunt's program and <laughs> Zygmunt spends a lot of time building that foundation building that base and that allow you that allows you to the year and a half before Rio basically go do nothing but max effort snatches and clean tricks mm -hmm. right I'm being a bit facetious but basically yeah well then when we carried that training through post Rio like that lasted two three years and then all of a sudden it's like why well, we're not getting better anymore well you know this is what i did part of rio and it worked well that worked because of what you did before that so now so, we need to re go back to that type again we need to build that foundation back again because right now when you do that type of high intensity training you're breaking down so sense. we need to reset the body to there and so but that was a gamble man it was a huge gamble to be like well do we do the opposite <laughs> like mm -hmm. do we hedge our bets more towards bulgaria and more towards specificity or to go back and, and that's just, you know, again, to answer your question, I don't think I yeah. have a good enough answer. It's, it, and I don't think anyone does. I think people can give you their opinion, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to just try something and, and see. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, the last uh, content I want to get into before we obviously talk about the best hip hop artists of the nineties. Oh yeah. And um, I want to talk just briefly about uh, the use of supplements. Some of them, you know, mm. the most uh, common ones that we see out there for, for all of our athletes, that really have no background. All they they know about supplements is what they read on bodybuilding.com or on the back of the supplement package. Let's talk uh, a couple of them first. Obviously, creatine is one of the most common ones out there. What yep. does creatine do? Should powerlifters, weightlifters, crossfitters should they be using it? Everything like that. So creatine is is one of, if not the most efficacious and effective supplements, known for a variety of things. Uh, not only should all of those folks generally be taking creatine but i think pretty much at this point i think more people should be taking that than even fish oil uh, for general health purposes it's the cognitive benefits the disease prevention benefits are, are so numerous it's just ridiculous i show my students this every semester when we get to creatine as i start out in pubmed and i put in creatine mm -hmm. and the first 10 to 12 articles are almost always things like treatment of alzheimer's disease uh, it's treatment of depression. It's, it, it seems like this. So it is so unbelievably effective for everything in your life. Um, I don't take any supplement all year round. I don't think you should take, you can, it's totally safe to take creatine all the time. Do you, do you uh, need to cycle off of no. it in order to change the benefits of it when you're on it? No, Not at all. no. there's okay. no evidence to suggest that. Um, I, I, I cycle off of it for other reasons, Yeah. but it's one of the few it's think of it more like protein. Like you don't have okay. to cycle off your protein. Yeah. Right, you don't cycle off carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. like, um, it, it's more of food than it is anything else. So it's very, very, very effective. Uh, the quick answer is it's the quickest source of cellular energy in your body, right? And so it's a one-to-one -one reaction. Uh, most other like glucose, carbohydrate, protein are one to 10 or 20 reactions. So it's one-to-one, -one. it's very, very fast. It is is the source of cellular fuel for your muscle 
so things like high power, high explosion, high intensity stuff, it, it fuels with that because it's fast. So when people fail to produce muscle contraction, it's not because of the amount of energy they can create. It's about they can't create the energy fast enough. Makes well, sense. ATP is, uh, sorry, uh, creatine is the fastest by far. And so it's very good for fast explosive movements. But again, it's, as I mentioned, it's also that because of that, it works very well in your brain. It works very well in the nervous system. Because remember, your nerves have to create energy as well. There's energy demands there. It works for your red blood cells, who also have to go through metabolism as well. It's very, very good in a whole host of things. So yeah, I mean, for sport performance, it's the biggest no-brainer out there. There are no USADA, no WADA uh, restrictions on it. You there's no legal issues uh, as long as it's not contaminated you know get a good quality is, is the amount that you're taking obviously i think a lot of them if you look at the back the daily recommended dose is like five grams per day i mean is there like a, a yeah. minimum threshold that we need to hit or is obviously it's going to be individual to the person their physiology yeah. so here's what i'll put um typically the the literature suggests somewhere between three to five grams for somebody 77 kilos mm -hmm. okay so you and i three to five grams per day is perfect Okay. If you're a little bit smaller, a little less. If you're a little bit bigger, a little bit more. So just take that as a baseline and then scale it. If you're 100 kilos, maybe six grams. Okay. Seven grams. Uh, if you're, you know, 50 kilos, maybe two grams is enough. Having said that, I don't ever worry about dosage on creatine. I don't okay. even measure it that closely. I'm just yeah. kind of like dump a little bit of it in because it's it's very liberal with that stuff. Uh, is there any like, need to do like the the whole uh, loading, the loading stuff and stuff like nah. that? Yeah. No. Okay. Um, well, there are situations when that that that, that helps, uh, particularly things like, uh, shit, we have a competition in three weeks. Okay, you need to load up. Well, that will help. But yeah, if this is part of again like your yearly training program, it's it's not going to matter at all to the okay. loading phase for the most part. Next common one, beta alanine. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. So beta alanine is a just an amino acid. Um, one of the primary mechanisms your muscles use to stop production of acid is, is a molecule called carnosine. Okay, carnosine is a combination of beta alanine and histidine, but your body makes a bunch of the other one. It doesn't make a lot of beta alanine. So when you supplement with a bunch of beta alanine, it can come together and make that carnosine. And again, that carnosine stops your muscles from producing a lot of acid when they're working. So this is a fancy way of saying beta alanine's primary effect is it blocks uh, fatigue. Okay. So because of this, it's a very effective supplement, particularly for high intensity interval type things. Mm -hmm. um, for sets of one, it's not going to matter a tremendous amount, but Hey, during your high intensity or I'd say your higher volume phase, when you're doing sets of five, six, seven, eight, Hey, like that's going to be very, very effective. So it's pretty also the same thing. There's no legal issues there. There's no guidelines. It's not a hormone. You don't have to cycle on and off of it. It doesn't influence sleep or anything mm -hmm. like that. It's not going to have any deleterious effects there. It's fairly cheap. The dosage start small, uh, smaller than you think. Yeah. And titrate up. This is a little bit different than creatine though. And the fact that um, unlike creatine, you probably need to slowly increase the dosage of beta alanine over time. Okay. Uh, it's more similar to caffeine like that. Although the effects of beta alanine are not acute. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is if you want the benefits of beta alanine, it's still going to take you three to four weeks. Interesting. Okay. So it's not something that's like you take it as a part of your pre-workout. Yeah. I don't care if you take a post-workout, off days, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The benefits will be seen in three to four weeks because it needs to get into muscle. You need, to, you need to build up more of that carnosine molecule. Um, so that's one of the major mistakes we see with beta alanine is it doesn't matter. It's, it's not an acute thing, even though you will feel it acutely. Yeah. 
if you try to bait outline, you know what I mean? Tingling for sure. <laughs> yeah. But the benefits come um, more chronically. Okay. At minimum three weeks. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, last one I want to definitely hit on caffeine. Obviously, caffeine is one of the most widely used supplements mm-hmm. in any sport, especially when we're going into the gym. Obviously, there's a legality part to it too, because when we're testing USADA and whatnot, you can't have too much caffeine. But I don't even know. Whenever I've looked it up, it's almost like you know parts per deciliter. Yeah. They don't give you an exact amount. Like, well, there is an exact amount on it. Going to. It's just- you would have to drink something like five straight cups of coffee within 30 minutes of okay of being the test or something like that. So effectively, you'll never get there by drinking a, a caffeinated beverage mm-hmm. ever. You could get there by taking a caffeinated supplement, so like a caffeine pill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you can take most people up to like eight milligrams per kilogram of body weight without failing. And if you've ever taken that much, it feels terrible. Yeah. So in general, I've never heard of anybody failing for caffeine. Um, you would, you would have to take such a stupid amount. So close. Is, is there a certain amount of caffeine that eventually can be yep. right about that harmful limit. for our strength and everything like that? Yeah. So anything past eight or so milligrams per kilogram body weight, you actually start seeing negative effects on performance. So you start getting worse. And you can also build up a tolerance to caffeine too, correct? A huge tolerance. Because all I remember is seeing people and they're like, oh, I use whatever no explode or c4 and whatnot and at first one scoop they're feeling great for their workout you yeah. see them a year later and they're like oh i take two to three scoops which is an ungodly amount of caffeine before they're starting to feel it so obviously yeah, no. that whole side of things this is a whole other interesting conversation maybe uh for later yeah. as i'm about out of time here but yeah i mean caffeine is different than pre-workouts so i am absolutely i have no issue I, i'm not a big caffeine fan uh, personally. Um, like a, a generally roll decaf most of the time yeah. for those things. Uh, but I have no problem if people like caffeine throughout the day. Caffeine can have two issues. So if you have to use caffeine to wake up, that's a problem or any stimulant that that's going to be a physiological problem. You're, you're, you're going to have issues there. The other issue is pre-workout. That's a little bit separate. I am hugely, I'm not against, but I'm generally not a fan at all of pre-workout supplements. Okay. Uh, they can have caffeine. They can have other things in them. But in times and phases, fine. Four weeks before World Championships, no problem. Go ahead, use all the pre-workout you want. But again, if you have to slug down two scoops of C4 to get through every training session, you're going to pay the price. Right? It's ins- <laughs> you're going to have a- some problems there. So I do not take any pre-workout supplements for exercise. I do not have any of my athletes take them. Some do. Uh, and I'm not going to like force them off of them because they're grown ass adults. Mm-hmm. But if, when they ask me, I say, no, um, with the exception of, again, like my UFC fighters, sometimes there's, there gets to a point in camp where I'm like, yeah, okay, like go ahead. Uh, but outside of camp, when you don't have a, we're not five, six weeks away, we should be able to get through training sessions without it. And if we can't, then we need to adjust our training program or our sleep or our nutrition. Like something else has to go because that's our physiological signal that says, Hey, we're not, we're not appropriate right now and we yeah. can't get through it or your motivation. Like you don't want to be doing this, whatever it happens to be. So generally I'm not a fan of any of those things in, in small dosages. Um, well, I think we definitely are, need to jump into this for sure at a later time. So I'm, we'll yeah. for sure do this. I know you, uh, you got to get out of here, but I definitely want to jump into pre-workouts and then we haven't even touched on nutrition and everything like that. So that yeah. sounds like something we can definitely dive into at a later podcast before we go. 
top five hip hop artists of the nineties. You can't do that to me. That's I a can't. tough question. I know we can't. No, like it hurts my heart too much. I can't. I, I did a podcast like a year and a half ago or a year ago or something with my yeah. buddy Jay Ferruja. Uh-huh. And I didn't even know. Like I wasn't prepared. And he, that was the first question he threw out to me. And yeah. I've never gotten nervous on a podcast in my life. That was the most nervous. I've been on big ones and bro, right, Rogan and everything. And I was like, you, I, 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 like you, <laughs> you, you, you can't do that to me. Like I take that so serious. So I refuse to answer your question. <laughs> what I will answer though is a couple of people. Maybe I'll throw out some names that maybe okay. you haven't heard of or that are grossly underappreciated. Okay. Okay. So uh, let me dive back a little bit here. Here is somebody who I think his rapping talent, maybe not in the 1990s, his 80s work were great though, is tremendously underappreciated, and that is Will Smith. Okay. His I, later I, albums suck. They're terrible. I'm not going to lie. Big Willie style was one of my first albums. Okay. Well, that's one of his not good ones. <laughs> I'm glad that I got did, into I it. Did, I'd agree with that. <laughs> his, his 80s work though, it is real, uh, like real classic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very good. Very, very underrated from there. I will say another guy that gets me hyped all the time is a guy named Paris. Okay. So he, uh, had, he did a lot of work with Public Enemy and Chuck mm-hmm. P. Uh, just a super revolutionary, you know, like probably pretty racist against white people, but that's like, <laughs> I give a pass, like very hateful, uh, vengeful guy, but yep. you know, like really, really passionate, really, really underrated artist there. Um, other ones that from that area that I'll, Oh my God, I'm going to kill myself after this. This is pretty much all I listen to is, yeah. is from the eighties. I mean, yeah. you can't ever go wrong with the classics. Yeah. You can't go wrong with Kim. You cannot go wrong with KRS-One. Oh, another one. Here's yeah. what I'll throw out to you. Uh, probably my favorite underrated rapper of all time. And I would say number one, if not number two, best live show I've ever seen in my life. Okay. Big Daddy Kane. Okay, yeah. Oh, so talented, man. Yeah. Just a, a savage on the mic. It's complete and utter savage. And uh, like th- this is back in the golden era of hip hop when you had to have all of it, man, everything. He's such a performer yeah. and ruthless, just, just straight ruthless on the mic. So yeah. he's another really solid one too. Uh, and then I'll throw another one out here who's technically counts as a 90s rapper because the first time I saw him was on these old uh, DVDs, I think from the 90s. Although he's pretty popular right now. Most people don't realize he's actually like an old hip hop guy and a super strength and conditioning junkie. Really? He loves nutrition, loves weightlifting, such a junkie. And that's a guy named Mac Lethal. I did not know that. He's a huge junkie, dude. Loves it. Really? Like, is such in love with strength and conditioning. It's, it's ridiculous. So mm-hmm. I remember watching that dude rap in Cincinnati way back in the day, uh, freestyle battles and stuff. And then like 10 years later, YouTube comes out and he makes a pancake video and gets like 10 million views or something. And now he's super <laughs> famous for making these YouTube raps, but he's actually a really super talented rapper. Yeah. That's awesome. So well, those, you can't leave without giving me all good information. You got to give me one guy from the 1990s that I should listen to that I haven't thought about. Oh gosh, that, that you should listen to that you haven't thought about. I will say this. And obviously this is a go-to for a lot of people, but this morning I listened to the entire Illmatic album yeah, from start to finish. I, I just think early Nas I think a lot of people forget about just how like song for song, 
the entire Illmatic album was just yeah. so fire that a lot of people forget to go back and I mean, cause obviously he had a number of hits later in the nineties and early two thousands, but that was one that in the early nineties, I was just, um, and then also, uh, the far side. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's, yeah, they had one was, big hit. Th- there was a couple of them. I was listening yeah. to uh, on Spotify, just clicking on them and just going through Shuffle. That was like, oh, shit, I totally forgot about this album. Yeah. Um, since you said Nas, I'll think of another one. So uh, everyone has heard of Big L for the most yes. part. Right? Yeah. Just a, like a legend, even though he had like one real album. But <laughs> yeah. what most people don't, what people sleep on a lot. So he had a crew called the Digging in the Crates crew. Yes. I was listening to their album last oh. week. Oh. My yeah. God. Have you heard Lord Finesse's solo album? Okay. Did you hear about the whole issue with Lord Finesse and Mac Miller taking his beats from the very first? So what's the one? Um, oh, taking Lord Finesse's beats. Yes. So yeah. the, uh-huh. um, what song was it that Mac Miller did? Uh, Kool-Aid and Frozen Pizza. Okay. So that, was, that was a rip off of Lord Finesse's beat, which obviously he took that from, I believe it was like a Russian jazz artist or something like that. Well, so that's the, crazy. Back in the day, though, man, like there was no such thing as sampling, so you could just take other people's stuff and put it up there. Exactly, and, like, yeah. that was normal. Yeah. So he gets a pass. It's not anymore now. But but Lord Finesse is like the, the DAT stuff and his personal stuff. I'm like every time I listen to it, I'm like, oh my now, god. Now he had Lord Finesse only had like one album. He's still around right, today right. too. Yeah. He's just, He's just more like producing and stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, he has some stuff. You can if you just Google around, you can find like YouTube videos that have a hundred views on them. Yeah. You know, but you're like you his, <laughs> his bars, and you're like, oh my god, yeah, just a street if you, savage. If you throw out the name Lord Finesse to anyone that likes hip hop nowadays. You're <laughs> like, you're gonna see a lot of blank faces. <laughs> well, I don't care. I don't care at all. If I see a blank face, that just lets it. me know I can't be your friend. I I 100 agree with it. So <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Well, man, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, all the listeners out there, go follow uh, Dr. Andy Galpin on Instagram. Check out his stuff on YouTube. He's got these awesome breakdowns of complicated research, but simplified in small videos, easy to understand that can add value to your life. Um, if you guys like today's podcast, please share it around with your friends. Uh, tag me on Instagram so I can personally reach out to you and say thank you for listening to today's show. Until next week, guys, happy squatting. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.